0: Welcome to the Grass Matters Podcast, brought to you by Great Southern. Now, today our guest is Kim Holzner. He heads up JBS Imports in the USA, and he's going to give us the latest on how the market there is performing, how grass-fed is perceived by US customers, but also some pretty interesting thoughts on how millennials are actually driving that demand. So, Kim Holzner, head of JBS Imports in the United States, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Things are pretty uh, wild over there at the moment. How are you feeling?
1: Yeah, Wilds uh, is certainly an understatement. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting few months over here. Um, I think the country's in a bad shape at the moment, but I think there's nothing really much we can do. Um, Our business, conversely, has actually been quite strong uh, through the the last four months when COVID started to hit. Of course, in different ways that it was stronger, say, in uh, previous years, but it's certainly been... uh, certainly so an interesting time for everyone. We're all sort of adapting as best we can to the new normal.
0: And I am really keen to get into how the US market is going, but did you want to first start off by telling us a bit about yourself and how you got into the industry?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I kind of uh, I kind of fell into the industry um, by accident. I, I'm not from a rural background. I grew up in, in the city, in Sydney. Um, and then when I was finishing up high school and trying to decide what I was going to do at uh, university, I got some pretty good advice at that time and the advice was try and find a university course which would be a career-driven path, so something which was was very clear into a, a path of, um, of employment when you finished. And I went to um, an open day for an agricultural economics course at the University of Sydney and I thought it was, sounded pretty interesting and then the, the stat which really impressed me and which kind of decided uh, to lead my path down that way, was that they told me that 98% of graduates uh, from the course were employed within the first three months. And I thought, that is going to be great. I really don't want to be working at the pub uh, with a <laughs> university degree. So I did the, did the degree, and sure enough, uh, after graduation, I got uh, hired by, um, at that time, the Australian Med and Lifestyle Corporation, which is now MLA. Um, and had a great uh, number of years there, like five, six years there, and that, Got me exposed to the industry really much at a 40,000 foot view. And then I joined the commercial sector after that uh, here in the United States. Actually, I was posted by MLA to work in the United States. And then I joined uh, the company um, uh, in 2005 and have been here ever since. And it's been a wonderful ride. I've really enjoyed it. And the meat industry certainly gets its hooks into you, hard in the pun. And I really love what I do. And I love the product too. It really helps if you like what you're selling.
0: So you're in Greeley, Colorado, at the moment. How's that going?
1: Good, yeah. I mean, Colorado's a really nice place. It's got obviously the middle of summer at the moment. Uh, Greeley is our headquarters. Uh, historically, uh, through the the company has been based. The US company has been based over here. Um, it's also the center of um, a lot of the meat packing industry uh, for the United States. Certainly, our company is headquartered here, and we have a, um, a very large US beef packing plant here in Greeley. Uh, one of the largest in the country so um, it's a nice place to live and we enjoy proximity and also have a lot of information sharing with our brothers on the domestic uh, beef pork chicken side of the business so we share a lot of information on what the market's doing customers and market trends and everything so it works out well
0: Good. Oh, now kim us fair to say it was probably the driving force or definitely, I guess, in mind when the Great Southern Programme got launched. Take us back to sort of how it started.
1: Well, I think there was a recognition back when, you know, a number of years ago that there was a a segment of the market which, or a gap in the market that that possibly uh, there was an opportunity to fill. Uh, We were um, always providing a a grass-fed type product. But it wasn't able to be certified um, that it was grass fed, and in many cases, it wasn't a natural product in terms of being hormone free or antibiotic free. Um, So, I think that there would, in addition to that, you had a lot of products which were grass fed, which probably didn't have an eating quality standard which measured up well enough for an American consumer. Uh, The American consumer is used to eating. Grain-fed beef um, for the majority of uh, for you know eighty actually ninety-five percent of all cattle here in the United States are grain-fed, so they come off with a lot of marbling and a lot of um, different flavour profile. So, in order to fill that gap with a natural or truly natural product with an eating quality which be which would be better than um, say a traditional grass-fed. Um, type animal which doesn't have a grading. They, um, you know, the Great Southern program was was really developed with that in mind. Um, in addition to that, taking it to the next level, where instead of just being a standard vendor declaration program, it was a third party audit, which really gave, gives a lot of customers here in the United States a lot of assurance that it's not just a company program; it's actually a, a an audited program, third party audited, uh, and, and a truly Um, a truly natural program which can be trusted from from start to finish.
0: With that, though, because I know particularly here in Australia, there's lots of concerns about the way things are labelled and there's this program, there's that program. When you then go into the US market with this new one, which you're saying, hey, this is a great farm assurance program, how does that then, how was that received at first?
1: Um, it's received definitely very well. I mean, with anything that we have to do, with anything we do in the export markets, particularly in the United States where you are, you are operating in a very large beef market in itself, uh, and imported beef is typically only 10% of the total market for beef, um, you do have to do a little bit of selling um, because a lot of uh, customers are not really used to a lot of imported offerings. Um, but then, once you get across the, the the concept of of why we produce the beef uh, under the Great Southern Program to the level of perform the performance that we can uh, produce it to in terms of the natural standards and also the eating quality standards and how we have different production systems in Australia which allow us to do that. Um, and then at the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding, as I say, and you, they taste the product and they see. Um, its eating quality uh, is really underpinning the, the quality of the product. It becomes a much easier sell after that.
0: So, how has I guess Great Southern in the US evolved since it first started, and what do you have going there now?
1: Um, you know, it's constantly evolving. Uh, we we've been in the market now for a number of years. Um, we've started to have we started to have some very um, good traction with some large. Um, I think you'd call them sort of quick casual type restaurants where they are offering natural selections.
0: Quick casual. And what do you mean by quick casual? Well, quick casual. But like a fancy way of saying fast food. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's not fast food. So when you think fast food, you think um, you know something which you just go in and you, you get your um, your product, and it's it's at the lowest quality of, of food, if you will. It's just it's a it's a different offering. Quick casual is a, an elevation above that. It's fast. Um, you can typically dine in and it may be um, just a better quality type of food it could be it salads like your be... diner
0: sort of place is that what you're talking
1: no I'm talking like uh, if you know for example um, there are there's a there's there's these chains called say there's Panera bread for example there is chipotle there's uh, a bunch of different other sort of chain restaurants that are offering a much more a better eating quality or a different eating quality product and it's also a different price point. Um, so yeah, so we, we had some success with those. Um, and then we've had success in in developing some smaller retail programs um, and some other food service companies. So sort of across the spectrum of the offerings of, of both channels, whether it be food service in some steakhouse um, type uh, operations where they're looking at a natural steak offering to be paired and partnered alongside um, say a a prime or a high-end grain-fed US domestic um, offering. Or if you go into food service, uh, excuse me, retail, um, it's uh, typically a a program which is a case-ready, as we call retail-ready program, where we bring in the primals from Australia on the, on the Great Southern product. And then we take it to a further processing facility here in the United States and we cut steaks and chops and we make mints and we make um, a full sort of complement of, of products for, which which go directly to the supermarket and they don't have to butcher it. It just goes straight into the, into the meat case and it's sold um, direct to the consumer.
0: And so why do you do it that way with the further processing?
1: Um, it's typically the, the, the decision of the retailer. The retailer, um there's been a general move in the united states over a number of years to remove a lot of the butchering which is done in the stores um it's a very skilled uh uh, trade and there's not a lot of people who are going into into uh, butchering certainly at the retail level and there there are there's other reasons like labor costs and occupational health and safety so when a program comes along which is typically a natural program is a lot smaller in its volume um, it's a, an offering which a lot of retailers really need to have because it attracts a high dollar uh, customer uh, a customer which is less price sensitive so they always want to have that um, natural offering but it would be only maybe five if not more percent of their meat case so if they're going to allocate any labour, they would allocate it to commodity type items where they're cutting a lot of meat, um, and it's uh, you know they're getting more, um, they're spreading the overhead over um, a larger volume of, uh, of commodity type product. And um, you know the other thing is too, they don't want to have to deal with a lot of shrink. And so when we give them product which is case ready, you know we're guaranteeing a certain amount of shelf life on those products, and we we're, we're essentially managing a lot of their supply chain for them
0: making it easier
1: yeah so another good example would be um costco we actually don't sell it directly to the to the warehouses but we we have a presence on there with their online um so their online um store i guess you'd call it costco.com and we've had a great southern product um on their platform there for a number of years now it's actually started to really grow in the last uh, um you know six to twelve months and that's been a really good success story for us um, that's another item where we, we it goes into a, a facility they cut stakes and then people order by the box a number of stakes 12 stakes whatever the case would be and that gets delivered directly to the tool
0: Costco is obviously huge but what's driving that growth
1: um, I think you know certainly in the last four months let's say and and it, and it was Steadily growing prior to that, particularly the last four months when we've gone through a significant yeah, change in everyone's purchasing habits because of COVID nineteen. We're online certainly through the month of March and April and May, where where people were ordering a lot more online um, to avoid going to supermarkets, um, to avoid getting out and getting in contact with other people. So you saw you've seen a real drive in retail online. Purchasing, and that's really, really helped us. We already had a product listed on there. Um, it performs really well. Uh, we always, we, you know, we get positive feedback through our own sources from from consumers on how the product's performing. Um, and it's uh, it's something which has just really found a really nice niche with with a certain customer base out there who are looking for a convenient item which is already pre-cut. Um, all you need to do is basically take it out of the packet, put it on the grill.
0: And so most of the Great Southern products, though, it would go into food service over retail? Uh, It's probably, yeah, probably
1: split sort of 60-40 at the moment.
0: Yeah. And if we do focus on food service, what Great Southern brands you've got? Obviously, there's Pinnacle, there's Little Joe.
1: Yeah, Pinnacle, Little Joe, and obviously the Great Southern brand. Um, You know, we do... The majority of it would be sort of a Great Southern offering. Uh, we do have a few small select segments of Pinnacle as well. Um, and Little Joe is just really the top end of the top end. So uh, invariably, um, be, you know, we, we probably don't get a lot of access to that because I think a lot of that product would stay in the domestic Australian market. Um, so it's you mostly the just a great ourselves. Southern. Product. Yes, you <laughs> sa- save the best for yourself, exactly.
0: Um, if we talk about some of the places where it goes in terms of some of the sort of steakhouses where you might see some of this product, sort of take mm-hmm. us through that.
1: Um, so, you know, one of, I'll give you one example. Is uh, There's a, a steakhouse chain in um, in the Chicago area or based out of the Chicago area called Gibson's. Uh, we've been supplying them with um, a great southern and pinnacle, obviously, as well, product for a number of years, and, and that will go on their menu um, and it'll be luxury. Lecture- Labeled that way as well, so that's probably be, that's a good example of, um, of a steakhouse chain which has been um, very accepting of of, uh, of that product, and have really taken a, a keen interest into it.
0: Um, so, Kim, on retail, then, how does the shopping experience differ for American consumers?
1: Well, Americans have a lot more variety. Um, you've got typically national supermarket chains, which are pretty much across the country, which is where most people do their shopping. And then in addition to that, you've got what we call big box uh, chains out here, which are warehouse-type cash and carries. So consumers will both do a combination of regular shopping at their supermarket chain and then go to their big box chain to load up on, on big items, you know, the, the items which they can buy in bulk and cheaply. You know, And then in addition to that, you've also got sort of regional-type chains which hit a particular, you know, uh, uh, issue or a typical point for some consumers in different parts of the country so with all of that you just have a lot more variety and you have a lot more opportunities to reach different consumer segments and therefore there's a lot more opportunities uh, for programs like the great southern product into this market um, in general
0: whereas you're in australia you're really sort of competing for those two major supermarket chains and a couple of independents
1: Definitely. So the, the, certainly the two market, the two uh, supermarket chains, was really dominate that landscape, it does limit the ability for variety, I'd say. Uh, you don't have that over here. There's, there's a lot more competition. And I think consumers benefit from that. I think a lot, a lot of people, certainly through this past Four months have been doing a lot of soul searching about, you know, you know, what's the next thing, and maybe they're trying to be a little bit healthier, and they've got the COVID thing going on. we are working out at home and trying to be healthier, um, and certainly this this plays perfectly into that, uh, you know, that sphere.
0: It's funny you say that because I was actually really shocked to see that less than sixty percent of meals eaten at home were actually prepared at home mm. in America. I mean, I don't know that might not be surprising to you, but I just. I would hope the numbers weren't as high here in Australia. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, I think, I think as we get through this whole period, I don't know whether we'll, we'll look back on 2020 and see if there was a, a fundamental shift in how people have been consuming their, their meals. Um, certainly, you know, the, even though restaurants are somewhat open again and it's different state by state, um, there's still a reluctance, I think, from a lot of the consumers to to even go to a restaurant, even if it is open and if you're allowed 50% capacity, um, you know, for the reason that maybe they don't want to be potentially exposed. So we'll see what happens after this year if it really changes people, people's consumption patterns um, on eating at home and dinners and things like that.
0: Is that sort of allowing more opportunities, I guess, to try and push that retail uh, sector then?
1: Definitely. So the retail sector really, really exploded for everyone through the the first sort of the first what so part of that COVID issue, you know, March and April and May. Um, it was partly driven by panic buying, which certainly you guys saw in Australia as well. I think that was a worldwide phenomenon. Um, I think there was a lot of stocking up going on, and then also we had the a, kind of a double whammy of of that going on, and then there was. Issues with the food supply, or well, certainly the meat supply here in the United States with um, plants having issues with, with COVID and they had to shut down for periods of time. So there was a, a significant gap in production and supply. So I think retailers at that time were kind of looking for any different option that they could possibly get the hand on. So it really did, it, did, it really did open up um, a lot of opportunities for. Um, you know, companies which had the available supply and certainly out of Australia with Great Southern, um, we've got certainly a, a vast supply, much greater supply of this particular product than ever could be um, generated here in the United States because it's such a small, comparable industry here in the United States and it's, it's quite expensive too because their costs of productions, cost of production is extremely high here on just on a pound-for-pound pound sort of similar offering out of the US. So we certainly have a, an advantage where we have the supply. We've got, um, you know, the, the ability to to provide a different solution, whether it be a case ready or, or mints or anything for these customers, and and we are competitive, price competitive. So we don't have to price ourselves out of becoming more of instead of becoming extremely niche, we can be more mainstream.
0: Is that the goal with Great Southern?
1: No, I don't think we want to be mainstream, but we don't want to be. Uh, we can't afford to be like veal. Um, veal is is one of those items which is so expensive, um, and it it really prices itself out of the picture. And it's true to say that the consumer who wants to buy a Great Southern product um, is probably a little bit more affable or affluent, I should say, uh, has the means to be able to buy uh, something which is a little bit more expensive and and values that too so but there's only so much you can i mean there's a, there's a point where you do price yourself out of the equation when um when when things you know you, it, it gets to the point where you, sometimes you, consumers are going to think twice about buying something which is too expensive so it's finding that it's finding that sweet spot between you know delivering value back to from great zone delivering that value back to um the producers who are who are going through the effort of of raising these cattle um, and adhering to all the standards that are required of the program, and in order to do do so, they need to be rewarded for that. Um, and then driving value back to driving also value back to our customers here, so they can see the value of paying a little bit more for the product because of its attributes and the value that it brings um, to their business as well.
0: Obviously, the average punter isn't necessarily the. Uh Great Southern or grass-fed customer, you know, particularly in such a grain-dominated market over there. Just what is that appetite for grass-fed?
1: Uh, yeah, you're right. It's, I mean, the average uh, person is not going to be a grass-fed or a Great Southern consumer. However, you do have a, a landscape which is shifting towards a better quality and when I say quality, it's a perception, but a, a, an item which may be better for you. Um, and that's driven by a younger generation. It's driven by population centres which are uh, open to more uh, products out of the United States. So you're talking the coastal regions of the country. Um, and then, you know, the younger generation is just looking for things which are going to be a little bit different for them and a little, maybe, maybe better as well. So... The, the message of hormone-free, antibiotic-free is very, very strong. So much so that you are looking now, you are seeing now that a lot of large companies, in order for them to um, satisfy their stakeholders that they're being sustainable in terms of their supply chains and maybe the food offerings that they're looking at at, at providing their customers, are actually starting to try and convert at least a portion of their supply chain into a antibiotic-free natural-type item. And uh, you'll see the likes of the, the big food service chains trying and sort of struggling to get over that through that issue because there really isn't that availability of supply yet here in the, in the United States, whether it be from an importer or a domestic source. Um, but it's growing. And so with programs like Great Southern and with, with, with uh, programs here in the United States as well, um, you are seeing a little bit more availability. But the reality is that, you know, Great Southern as a program and Australia in general is so far ahead of, of other countries in terms of producing this type of product. So we've definitely got a huge head start. And, and the shifting momentum towards this type of product from customers here will, will only, will only uh, reward uh, Great Southern program um, more as we go forward.
0: Would it be fair to say then you're sort of on the cusp of an explosion, or is it more like a gradual increase?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's an explosion. I'd say it's a gradual increase. It's a slow, it's a slow burn. Um, we've been at this now, and certainly from my experience, I've been trying and promoting natural type uh, beef since uh, I first got here 20 years ago, and. You know, it's it's like a flywheel. You know, it takes a lot of effort to get that flywheel going, and then all of a sudden you get the momentum, and it it, it really starts to almost turn on its own. We're not we're we're getting to that point where we're just getting a lot of um a, a lot more traction on this, and, and as the segment really becomes more attractive to the consumer base here, it's it's going to be the first the first of those who are in the, who are in this market and have the the product which satisfies the needs. Um, We'll take advantage of that.
0: Now, obviously, a lot of people listening to this, you know, maybe great Southern producers, so they know all the reasons why their product is great. But for those who are perhaps outside of that, what is it that really sets Great Southern apart in terms of taking advantage of that move towards that direction?
1: Well, I think the, I think the big part of it is the eating quality. I think there's so many different off- offerings which... Um, It is what it is, but they don't have the eating quality to support, um, you know, repeat purchasing um, and and satisfaction from the customer base. Um, You know, you've got many examples of beef which is natural or it has no antibiotics or it has no hormones, but, you know, there isn't a breed component or there's not an MSA component or any grading component for that matter. And, you know, at the end of the day, people are willing to, it buys something which they perceive as better for them, but if it doesn't satisfy their eating um, satisfaction or their, you know, they don't like what they eat, you know, it, it's going to disappoint. So I think the biggest, the biggest differentiating point of the Great Southern Program is certainly the eating quality, which underpins everything else that you that you have. In addition to that, which I think um, is is important too, is, is the third party auditing because that's one thing which stands aside from um, from other natural programs where where we do have a very robust third-party audit which means that our customers can be you know 100% assured that what they're getting and the labels and the claims that have been made on this product are genuine um, and and they're watertight
0: now i think a lot of in the terms of how i've been speaking is being beef sort of related i'm particularly interested in how uh lamb goes over there because it's not really something that's commonly eaten. I mean, I remember I first, when I first went travelling, was with some American travellers and we all were in this Irish pub keen to have a lamb roast and they absolutely turned their noses up at it because it's just not something they eat.
1: Yeah, so lamb is, uh, lamb consumption is um, half a pound per capita per annum. I mean, it's extremely small, um, but it's still, when you take the totality of the market, nearly 400 million people, you, you end up still having a very substantial market for lamb. Lamb is is essentially split 60-40 between imported lamb and domestic American lamb. Um, and that has been shifting towards imported you know, at a steady clip over the past three decades. as because the industry they're more or
0: because their production's going down?
1: Their product is going down, so the the American sheep industry is is almost a cottage industry now. It's it's very small. Um, they produce a, a different product as well, and their cost of production are higher. So, like I said before, they, you know they tend to price themselves out of the ma- of you know of mainstream types of shopping. Even though lamb is again one of those items where. It's a destination item. You know, most Americans aren't going to the supermarket and looking at the pork and beef and lamb and saying, "Oh, maybe I'll do lamb tonight." They go there for lamb because they've got a particular recipe in mind, or they've got a tradition which they which they adhere to, whether it be Easter or Christmas.
0: So it's a special or occasion meal.
1: Special occasion, exactly. So, um, so it's really you know, lamb has been a is a small part of most. Retailers, if we look at the retail segment, is a small part of their meat case. is typically only three percent, um, and but it's something something that most retailers can't ignore because there've been numerous studies uh, and, and research done over the years that the lamb consumer, <coughs> excuse me, is a is a higher dollar consumer. They typically buy more in the cart. So retailers talk about the amount of dollars per cart here. So it, you know a high dollar cart consumer is is something which retailers really want to get into their store. And so they find that the lamb consumer is one who's going to buy more product, higher margin items, higher value items, and a bigger dollar ring, which is great for their sales. So they can't ignore lamb. Um, the, there are a certain number of, of retailers here in the United States which do a, a fantastic job with lamb. Um, and they're the ones which really, really understand the, the benefit of having a good lamb program. In terms of attracting those higher-end consumers, but no, it's it's a, it's a it's not a commonly eaten protein. Um, I know that you know in in our team over here we have about six Aussie guys, um, all sort of similar to me, and, and we've made it our mission to convert as many Americans over as possible through our personal connections. And I know how are you why. going with that. <laughs> you know, I I do a lamb dinner every year. Um, where we invite a lot of friends, you know, friends and neighbours and everything, and I cook, I cook uh, our great southern lamb racks, um, and then for many of them, that's the first time they've ever tasted lamb, and I've, I think I've got a pretty good strike
0: rate. What sort of reactions do you get?
1: Yeah, the reaction is, I think you know they're very, I wouldn't say they're hesitant, but at the end of the day, when, when you serve it with a nice lamb rack, a French, um, uh lamb rack, uh, it's it cooked on the barbecue in a very simple way with just salt and pepper and some rosemary. It, you know, it's a pretty easy sell, um, and and a lot of them really like it. Um, so, as I said, they taste it, they like it. The biggest stumbling blocks is if you're not used to cooking lamb, you don't know how to. Um, it it can be a challenge, and it's uh, it's something which a lot of consumers over here are reluctant to sort of dive in with uh, with both feet. And that's why I think the efforts of the industry over the years to, you know, expand the culinary education of consumers about how easy it can be to cook lamb, um, you know, it is vital because I think a lot of Americans here think lamb is like a, a lamb leg roast and it takes 20 hours to cook and I don't know how to do it and what do I, what temperature I cook it at. So it's um, it's it's a it's something which I think the industry has been working very well over the years, but still a ton of work to do.
0: Is it really about latching on, I guess, to that sort of chef phenomenon?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think a lot of people, the first time they would have tasted lamb or even tried it would have been at a restaurant if they're adventurous enough. And certainly the younger generation are adventurous. So they would go, and, and you know, chefs are always looking for something which is different, something to differentiate themselves from the from the, from the pack. Um, and getting into those different cuts and getting those different proteins is, is what those you know, higher end, more adventurous chefs are looking for. So that's why you see... So the explosion of pork belly and, and things like that over the years uh, has been really, uh, you know, and lamb's been part of that. So you see a, a lot more lamb has been on the menu of late because chefs are trying to be creative, trying to be um, trying to have something different. And so consumers will choose. Consumers will often try lamb for the first time in a in a culinary environment, and that's great. Um, but then transferring that over to the retail or cooking at home is often a challenge because they may not know what kind of cup they ate at the restaurant. Um, and then, you know, tr- how, how to cook it at home is a completely different killer of fish. So I might like the taste of lamb, but getting them to be able to put it on a grill or go to the supermarket and buy the loin chops and, and you know, and get it out there, is, there's a bit of a disconnect there.
0: Given that the US imports so much lamb and their production is going down, that surely can only be a good thing for Australian producers.
1: Definitely so. the The challenge really is to, yes, we're we're facing a market where domestic lamb is is declining, and that void, that gap, is being filled by imports, of which Australia one. So there's obviously New Zealand is another um, significant part of of the market as well, and so as 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 that segment starts and continues to decline then we 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 have the ability to take market share Um, the thing that we have to really be careful about is that we don't that the pie doesn't reduce itself the whole land market doesn't shrink as well because even if we get a a larger portion of the pie if it's shrinking then we're we're kind of not improving our situation so um the the things that we try to work with our customer base particularly retail is to do you know appropriate uh, marketing efforts to promote the product uh, and not just try and you know do a set and forget kind of relationship with with our customers um, and that's very important to be able to convert particularly this younger generation which we all talk of millennials we all talk uh, there's, there's a lot of deficiencies. I like see.
0: how you smirk as you say that.
1: <laughs> and I'm just giving. I am just actually telling you exactly what I hear about you know people complaining but the reality is that this, this is the generation which over here we need, to, we need to latch onto the acceptance of lamb and the enjoying, you know, the, the, the eating experience and the enjoyability of eating lamb which will translate to them as they, as they get into stages where they will be eating more at home instead of going out.
0: It's almost like they need a sort of Sam kekovich style um, lamb Australia Day campaign every year or something.
1: Yeah, I, I'm not sure we have the certainly have the money to be able to do something like that, but uh, um, you know, I think that uh, I think the industry's done a good job. You know, the MLA's involved in a lot of marketing over here, uh, and we do our fair share as well. But you know, we we, we certainly try to give as much uh, marketing support to our customers to be able to promote the product and not just hope that it gets put in the meat case or goes to the food service distributor and they can sell it because it's not it's not as easy as that.
0: So, Kim, if we look at the market going forward for Great Southern lamb and beef, what is it like? I'm sure in the short term, the way things have gone, there's a fairly big backlog of cattle, particularly in the US, to get through at the moment with those plant closures and that plant burning down earlier this year. Is that mm. going to place a bit of competition on these premier markets?
1: it's hard to say but I, I i personally i don't think so because i think we're operating in a in a if we look at great southern Beef for an example we're operating in an environment where there isn't a comparable there isn't a comparable supply of, of typical product of like for like product here domestically what the what we have now is certainly an oversupply of of cattle because of the backing up of cattle when the plants uh, started to go down with COVID here six to eight weeks ago. And those cattle have backed up and those cattle have become um, fairly cheap. And so you've, you've seen a lot of commodity, when I say commodity type meat, it's USDA choice and select type product, which, which needs to be sold and that's what prices have come down but that's really not the area that we compete in, typically. Um, now we have to be mindful that there is a, a when the price differential between a USDA choice steak and say a Great Southern steak gets too wide, then consumers start to to change their minds. But typically, the consumer for a Great Southern beef or the consumer for a Great Southern lamb or any really lamb item for that matter is typically going for that product, and and are less concerned about its price point. Um, I'm not saying it's you know the price is is not is uh, is not negotiable or anything. It's there is a negotiating part of it, a part of it, but it's less important. So I don't think that this situation here in the United States here in the short term will have a a, a huge impact on on our businesses as we continue to grow it over the course of this year.
0: So basically very strong. <laughs>
1: It's hard. I'll be, but I'll prefix all of this with a with a big asterisk and say it's really hard to know what's happening, what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone down you know two months time. So we're just in a very fluid situation uh, where um, you know it 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 makes forecasting and sort of looking looking into the future very difficult to do, and that's been sort of probably the biggest challenge of our of the last few months and weeks and days is really understanding, you know, which which way we should be operating and how we should be planning for the the immediate future.
0: On that, is the abattoir um, reduction in production here in Victoria, will that have much impact on what's getting out and overseas?
1: Yes, it will. I mean, we're certainly seeing some issues with um, land production in the last few weeks and, and, and that's certainly going to have some a measurable impact on some of our our programs up here um luckily we've had a a fairly um understanding customer base they they're they're, they are being they're working with us to to you know if we are entering some shortfalls in production because of some issues with uh, the plants in Victoria, that they're they're being understanding about it and working with us, but definitely it's a challenge. It's a very it's a very difficult challenge for, and I'm not in the in the processing side of our business, obviously. So, and I, I don't pretend to be to know much about it, really. But I know that our guys are really working very hard to try and um, navigate through this system, and it's it's been an extremely challenging environment for everyone, but. We're in the food business and uh, we have a you know we're an essential item really or essential service for for uh, customers around the world and and also certainly we need to be um, uh, able to process these those animals for our great southern producers as well so we have an obligation to them to continue operating as best we can but it is a challenge
0: particularly if it does end up getting extended as well I guess um, yes sense of stage four yep. here. Um Kim, I know we've already touched on this somewhat, but longer term where do you see things going?
1: So I think that the momentum of of, um, of the natural segment, whether it be and, and something which which Great Southern fits perfectly into is is irreversible at this point. you've got a, a growing consumer awareness about different dietary habits of which have changed in the last decade and, and a certain of a shift towards more protein in a diet um, lean protein in addition as well so i think that the next generation of consumers coming through are, are going to be more acceptable to having red meat as part of their diet that's that's really where i think great southern beef and lamb really fits perfectly into that in addition the movement towards sustainability uh with a lot of uh, customers and and Big, big corporations in both the food service and retail sector are looking to promote that they, are, um, they have sustainable supply chains. And certainly uh, an offering like, like Great Southern really fits into that mould perfectly. And so the future is very bright for Great Southern beef and lamb here in the United States. Um, we've got a lot of resources behind promoting this product here in the United States and elsewhere for that matter. And a lot of people have very much invested um, emotionally into this these programs because we love what we do. We like the product. So I think it's got a very bright future and we're we're very excited about what the next what the next years bring us. Certainly we're excited about getting out of 2020.
0: <laughs> Isn't everyone? Yeah. Um, so last question, Kim. Last supper, what do you choose?
1: Lamb. I would do a lamb rack, right on the lamb rack. Um, I would put it on, on my barbecue. I like to do medium on lamb. I know that might get some hisses out there, but I like to go a little bit more on the medium side. Very simple, salt, pepper, rosemary.
0: And who comes over? Well, hopefully if
1: my last supper is around that I could have family around here, but if not, I'll just put on a good rugby game and be done with it.
0: Good stuff. Thanks so much, Kim Hollison, for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the grass matters podcast now remember this podcast lands every thursday 2 p.m make sure you get it downloaded on whatever device you might be listening off but also please do us a favor and give us a rating because it really does help and of course you can always follow us on our socials at great southern family